Unlock exclusive content and access to our podcast while supporting our show. How is that possible? Become a Narratives of Purpose patron at patreon.com forward slash NOP podcast. dear listeners, welcome to Narratives of Purpose. You are now tuned into a new episode showcasing unique stories of changemakers, stories of people who are contributing to make a difference in society. This show was created to amplify social impact by sharing individual journeys of ordinary people who I believe are making extraordinary impact within their communities and around the world. My name is Claire Marie Gande. I am your host on this podcast. If you want to be inspired to take action, then look no further. You are in the right place. Get comfortable and listen to my conversations. It's been a learning process. It's been something that was a little unexpected, but um, has really grown into not only just that community piece, but also a resource and support piece for uh, women of color, especially with our career development. Um, resources, you know, internships, industry connections, uh, funding for conferences, certifications, kind of anything that they need to further their career in opera culture in whatever sector they want to. But then now we're really looking at expanding to cover all, you know, underrepresented demographics that are in opera culture. You just heard from Imani Black, the founder of Minorities in Aquaculture. Today's episode is the final episode of the short series exploring sustainable food systems. As Imani alluded to, our topic for this episode is building community around food production. Not only will we look into the aquaculture industry with Imani at the US and international level, We will also look at supporting organic and holistic food cycles, as well as creating local supply chain networks to revolutionize fast food here in Switzerland. First in the northern part with Urban Agriculture Basel and one of their founding members, Bastian Frich. Then in the western part with Alles Gut Gemüse Kebab restaurant and its two co-founders, Romain Ögerli and Johan Pello. Let's find out how these changemakers are contributing to develop a more sustainable and healthier food system. And for this episode, but also for our sustainable food series to reach more people, I invite you to take a moment and share your feedback by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or directly on our website at narratives-of-purpose.com. Dot podcastpage.io. Then simply click on the review page. This will help other listeners find our show and further amplify the stories of changemakers we bring on Narratives of Purpose. In this final part of my Exploring Sustainable Food Systems on the podcast, I had the pleasure to speak with a young generation of community and network builders who are either restaurant owners or non-profit organization founders. I first dived in aquaculture to learn about this industry with Imani Black. And trust me when I say learn, because it is way more than what I initially thought it to be. So Imani is the founder of Minorities in Aquaculture, in short MIA, a nonprofit which believes that one can create a more diverse and inclusive industry by educating minority women about the environmental benefits provided by aquaculture. Imani is a sustainable seafood advocate. She is passionate about the restoration of keystone species, especially shellfish, both locally and globally. But Imani believes that the restoration of oysters and other critical shellfish populations requires more people and more diversity. I asked Imani about how she began her journey in aquaculture and especially what led her to create MIA. My name is Imani Black. I am a former uh, oyster farmer on the Chesapeake Bay in the United States uh, on the East Coast. I am a 
double minority in the aquaculture sense because I am a female and a person of color all in one. And so aquaculture, which is basically just uh, farming, but uh, in the water and for seafood instead of uh, terrestrial products, um, it's a male dominated field. And so women in a lot of sectors are very scarce. So um, I have been in oyster aquaculture for about six years, going on seven years now. Um, got into it right out of college and sort of just kind of kept with it over the years, working in kind of all the different sectors of, you know, hatchery, nursery, and farm. In 2020, my career kind of took a shift and I got more into the social science aspects of aquaculture. I started my nonprofit, Minorities in Aquaculture. Um, and then I became a master's student as well at University of Maryland, um, studying ecological anthropology. So a little bit of a twist, um, but I'm hoping to get back into the commercial aquaculture sector. But for now, I'm in academia and nonprofits. So you just said that you, you're now doing an MBA and you went into social science and at the same time you founded or you created Minorities in Aquaculture, which is your nonprofit organization. Tell me more about how did that start? Why did you want to create this? That's a really crazy, uh, unexpected story. Um, like I said, I had been working um, on oyster farms and with oyster companies since I graduated college. From 2018 to 2020, you know, I was the assistant hatchery manager for the first privately owned shellfish hatchery in the state of Maryland. Um, so really kind of being in charge with animal husbandry of larvae, pretty much just making sure that they didn't die. They had all that they needed. Uh, like I said, in 2020, it was kind of an unexpected shift. I lost my job and was really in a space right in the heart of the diversity and inclusion movement um, and just being really moved by the conversations that I was you know, seeing, the conversations I was having and the feelings that I was having as a person of color during that time. Um, you know, with Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and so many other uh, incredible, influential African-Americans that, you know, lost their lives so tragically, I was really affected by that. And so I really started to think like, you know, were my spaces that I was involved in and that were influencing me, were they as safe and inclusive as I thought they were? And once I took a step back, um, I realized that they weren't. And that in a lot of instances, whether it was misogyny or racial or microaggressions or whatever, like there were multiple times where I didn't feel safe in a lot of my workspaces. And so I kind of set out in 2020 um, when no one could really give me an answer on like what other people of color were in leadership roles in aquaculture. And when I mean leadership roles, I mean hatchery managers, assistant hatchery managers, farm owners, anything like that. And so when no one could kind of give me an answer, I really started Minorities in Aquaculture to find other women of color that looked like me, um, that I could share my experiences with, that they could share their experiences with me, and we could start a community um, since I hadn't worked with another woman of color in my space ever before. Um, but then it's just grown to so much more um, than that. Uh, I officially launched uh, the nonprofit uh, in October of 2020. You know, I had no idea how to start a nonprofit. Let me just put that out there. I Googled, how do I start a nonprofit? And I've just been Googling things ever since then. Um, it's just sort of been working out. And so um, it's been a learning process. It's been something that was a little unexpected, but um, has really grown into not only just that community piece, but also a resource and support piece for uh, women of color, especially with our career development. Um, resources, you know, internships, industry connections, uh, funding for conferences, certifications, kind of anything that they need to further their career in aquaculture in whatever sector they want to. Um, but then now we're really looking at expanding to cover all, you know, underrepresented demographics that are in um, aquaculture, just to be able to be that, you know, connection, that support, um, and those resources that they can go to. Um, you know, whatever demographic that they're in. So, so yeah, that's kind of where we are right now. Let me come back to something you mentioned earlier. You spoke about leadership roles and, you know, having role models. Can you 
perhaps just break it down for me and for our listeners as well to understand how does an oyster farm work? And when you're speaking about aquaculture, is it only oysters? Sometimes there's a lot of miseducation and misrepresentation of what aquaculture truly is. It really is just, you know, ag, like farming on land, just in the water. So it's not just shellfish. It's, you know, finfish is a really big industry. Um, kelp is now becoming a really flourishing industry. Uh, they're doing, you know, uh, coral aquaculture, you know, to restore coral reefs in a lot of places all over the world. And, you know, just a different variety of of different seafoods that are really encompass our seafood industry kind of falls under aquaculture and aquaculture practices. As a oyster farmer, my main job in the hatchery was to basically breed the adults. So a lot of the aquaculture practices are just mimicking what oysters go through in their natural life cycle. It's just in that controlled setting. So once we get, you know, viable oysters that are free swimming, growing, get into that mature stage where they want to set on a hard substrate and be sessile for the rest of their life, you know, we're really just kind of giving them as many nutrients, giving them clean, you know, tanks and environments, clean water, um, just, you know, clean quality all around so that they can be the best larvae that they can. And then as they kind of go through, we're just basically doing the same thing. You know, we're grading them out so there's no competition, making sure their environment's clean, making sure they have enough food making sure that they make it to the next stage. And then it goes on until it gets to people's dinner plate. So yeah, it's kind of a lot of hands-on uh, stuff um, that you have to do at each different stage of aquaculture. Finfish is like one of the biggest industries in aquaculture right now. And in the United States, you know, we import 84% of our seafood anyway, and about 30% of that is coming from aquaculture globally. Um, so, you know, it's really becoming the center point of our seafood production right now. A lot of people don't know that. And I think that's one of the most, you know, important things and reasons why I like having conversations like this to really kind of hone in on that point of like, uh, if you like seafood, you are directly connected to aquaculture in some way, whether you know it or not. So it's just really important to learn about that industry because it will become the focal point of our sustainable seafood resource all over the world. So the faster that people kind of get on board with it, learn about it, advocate for it, uh, advocate for research and, you know, innovation, the more that it can become more sustainable and more improved for everybody. And is that also one of the uh, activities that you do with MIA in terms of creating more awareness and explaining to people? Because I always have this thought that whenever I go and buy food, it's always important to try to understand where does it come from? So is that something that you also address through your organization in terms of awareness and that people should also, you know, try to do that effort to learn more about where their food is coming from? Definitely. I think that's the most important piece of really giving people power in their food choices is uh, helping them understand and be educated on how they can know where their food is coming from. So we're toying with a bunch of different ideas on how do we expand that education and that knowledge right now? Um, and what are the most impactful ways of doing that? We have about 120 plus members right now. So all women of color um, all over the world. Um, and so they're mostly already in aquaculture, you know, in all different stages from undergrad to already in the industry, have been in the industry for years. Um, so it's really kind of the, the new members that come in that might do an internship or something like that that don't know about aquaculture, that that's where we really try to do the hands-on piece and like the educational materials at the same time um, so that they're kind of getting the best of both worlds and meshing what they're learning, you know, textbook-wise with what they're learning hands-on-wise. As Imani mentioned, she is based in Maryland, but the members of her organization are all over the world. They are mostly on the east and west coasts of the United States, where the engagement is highest. However, the reach expands to other countries like Norway, Sri Lanka and Italy. I was curious to know about the partners Imani collaborates with in order to provide the right resources and support to MIA members. As far as the resources and the funding that we've gotten, um, I've just worked really hard to create partnerships with, you know, aquaculture farmers, and other, you know, organizations that want to support our efforts. Um, we've gotten grants from, you know, other organizations to be able to do our internship program 
We funded fully funded five women of color this summer in our in, in our first kind of kickoff year of the internship program, which came from, you know, a multiple different uh, funding sources. So, you know, I do what we can. I'm always, you know, uh, applying to grants. I'm always, you know, uh, have I have a list of different programs and stuff that are currently going and that, you know, I'm uh, kind of in the works of doing for MIA that I'm constantly in meetings like where there's funding opportunities. I'm like, well, I have a program that's over here that uh, I'm starting fundraising for. And here's all the stuff. And if it fits, it fits. And if it doesn't, then I have another program. You know, it's like uh, kind of um, have to kind of have them on decks just in case, uh, you know, a funding opportunity or a partnership opportunity kind of comes up and it fits perfectly so that we were able to support and do as much as we want to do. I've really kind of made it so that Minorities in aquaculture can really kind of mitigate some of the barriers that women of color and minorities in marine sciences in general have to go through and just sort of take them out of the equation as much as we can and just say, hey, here's this opportunity. Go and get as much out of it as you can and, you know, help your career move forward in whatever way that you want it to without worrying about, you know, financial or any of those other things. Now, you've heard about the importance for MIA to integrate the education piece when addressing sustainability in terms of improving the seafood industry, but also improving food resources. I also wanted to know what challenges Imani thinks still lie ahead. Please note that my conversation with Imani was recorded in September 2022 at the time when MIA was just about to celebrate its two-year anniversary since the launch in October 2020. So there's two things that kind of come to mind. Um, I, I've been saying this in conferences and different uh, aquaculture spaces, but there's a lack of transparency in a lot of sectors of aquaculture um, that, you know, when we have misconceptions about the industry, we can't combat them, you know, and as an industry, we get very upset about films like Seaspiracy representing the industry, not in a whole accurate way or the misinformation that for oyster aquaculture, for example, or even finfish, like it's genetically modified foods and it's unsafe. Like all of those things are just so far off base from the good stuff that we're doing in aquaculture that like our communication within the industry really needs to kind of amp up. So if like somebody reads those misconceptions, they have resources that they can go to to combat those directly. Um, but we don't really have anything like that. Um, I think the second thing is um, that education piece. In the industry, we have to really start expanding what our outreach really is, how wide we're casting out our nets, because Diversity and inclusion to me just, just doesn't mean background and ethnicity. It means a diverse skill labor, a diverse outlook on where the future of aquaculture can be. All of those things combined um, could really elevate where we are in the industry of seafood. So from your perspective now today, it's what, almost end of 2022. Um, how do you see things moving forward? Are we going in the right direction? What is your outlook? I think in a lot of ways we're heading in the right direction, but in a lot of ways we're kind of stuck in a rut. Um, I think that was one of the things that I really realized when I started Minorities in Aquaculture is like, why do we keep talking about diversity and inclusion? Like, can we just let's let's go? Like, let's get it let's get it going. Um, but you know, I just think that in a lot of ways, we're moving forward in that sustainability piece, you know, really trying to figure out how do we improve our industry? How do we improve our food resources? But I think that in a lot of ways, we're kind of stuck in like the history piece. We don't really acknowledge that like social science is just as important as hard science. And the past really does, sh does shape the future. So we can't learn where we're going next until we learned where we've been and what we've done. If we continue just to move in the right directions and really amplify the voices that need to be, you know, amplified that haven't been represented very well over the last few years, if we get the information out, then we can continue to move in a really, really great speed in a really, really great impactful way. 
And I think there's a perception that doing something impactful takes a really long time to make it impactful. And that's not necessarily the case. If you want to do something impactful, you can do something today that impacts somebody else. You just have to do it in an intentional and efficient way. So like for MIA, you know, everyone's like, well, how are you recruiting students? How are you recruiting members? And on just from them finding us, really what I do is I go to where the momentum is already, is already kind of sparked. Historically, black colleges in the United States have marine biology programs, have biology programs. Look, you talk about a diverse applicant pool. That's a great place to start. People that are already have an interest in the field, clearly they declared it as a major. They have an interest. Give them the opportunities. Schools that have different marine programs, that's a great place to start. Uh, schools and coastal communities, that's a great place to start. So, you know, it's not that it's not hard. It's just that I think that people think about it too tightly. And so the perception is like, oh, it takes five to 10 years to make a really impactful minority engagement program. And I'm like, no, MIA is, you know, done more than that in less than two years. Uh, and I would like to think we've had a really great impact on our minority engagement. So it just shows you that if you really want to do it, you'll do it. Moving from sea to soil and back to Switzerland, where my exploration began, I came across a network organization called Urban Agriculture Basel, in short, UAB whose mission is to promote other organizations and projects committed to an organic and holistic food cycle in the Basel region. So, geographically speaking, that is the northwestern part of the country, close to the French and German borders. In fact, UAB advises project initiators or organizations on how to use their energy most effectively for regenerative soil-friendly and future-generation-friendly nutrition. UAB also raises awareness among the population about the need to make our food supply more sustainable. Bastian Frisch is one of the leading members of Urban Agriculture Basel. He explained to me what this means exactly. Menschen zu ermutigen, selber aktiv zu werden. Das ist eigentlich, was wir seit der Gründung tun und uh, was wir bis heute What we have done since our inception and what we still do today is encouraging people to become proactive themselves. In a so-called living transformation lab, encouraging people to take action now in a very accessible way and develop alternatives because what we see is that business as usual is not an option. We work a lot based on the World Agriculture Report but also other reports, for example, the EAT Commission Report and the Planetary Health Diet. So we are guided by that. Therefore, we try to create alternatives without claiming that we have ready-made solutions, but we have the courage to try something, to reflect, to fail together, and we naturally create a community where you have a trusting space for people to inspire each other, support each other, or even to embrace each other in a sad moment and say, okay, maybe that wasn't a good idea. So let's try another one. Vertrauensraum hat etwas auszuprobieren, sich zu inspirieren, sich gegenseitig zu uns unterstützen oder eben auch mal in einem, sage ich mal, traurigen Moment in den Arm zu nehmen und sagen, okay, das war, das war vielleicht keine gute Idee. Let's try another one. Urban Agriculture Basel was founded in 2010 with this fascinating question to begin with: What if? And this has led the organization to develop numerous projects along the food supply chain. Have a listen. What if Basel were edible? That was our original question. And from that, other what-if questions arose. In the past 12 years, about 100 projects have emerged from this that are part of our network. And these projects are along the entire food supply chain. It goes from production to processing, distribution, shopping, cooking, eating, to recycling, composting, seeding or planting. All right, so what are some examples of these projects? 
Mind you, since the name of the organization is Urban Agriculture, I had this vision of gardens disseminated on building rooftops. But Bastian candidly wiped out this image from my mind and explained that classical projects of city gardens are only a small fraction of what they support. Du stellst dir vielleicht jetzt so ein so vielleicht wie New York vor so diese You are probably imagining like in New York these green flat roofs with vegetable production. We don't have that in the strict sense in Basel. We try whenever possible to exploit the potential in the soil. We have of course some community gardens in this sense. There are many small garden projects in the family garden areas, projects with multiple generations, kindergarten with elderly people's homes, or things like that. But coming back to what I said earlier, we have projects along the entire food supply chain. There are also projects that collect wild herbs and weeds and refine them into products. Or we also have very classic educational projects or seasonal cooking. We have mushroom production on coffee grounds. There's a very diverse range, so there are actually few limits to creativity. And you can do that without a garden. You can do it in your kitchen, you can do it through your shopping behavior, you can do it whenever you go out. Over the years, urban agriculture Basel has grown in the number of projects they developed. These are all autonomous, self-managed, individual legal structures such as non-profit cooperatives, limited liability companies, associations, spin-offs or even foundations. UAB has therefore become a reference point or a competence center, especially for launching projects. The main goal, as Bastian said early on, is that people are active and encouraged to do something. You can even find the different steps to initiate your own project listed on the UAB website as inspiration for anyone to start the change themselves. Bastian also told me that for their multi-stakeholder model of work, to be successful today, one needs alliances and good partnerships. That got me wondering about the impact of UAB. So I asked Bastian to share some highlights of their work and especially how their influence at the local level has evolved in the past 12 years. Ich glaube, es gibt größere Erfolge, zu denen wir einfach beigetragen haben. I think there are major successes to which we have simply contributed to, which must also be humbly celebrated, and from which we are perhaps not even perceived from the outside as having made significant contributions to. But that is typical for grassroots movements, and there you are always operating in grey areas. But the fact that today the canton and city of Basel developer can actually present everything in a way that seems obvious. I heard a speech from him a couple of weeks ago and I was very, very pleased when I heard his speech, although he has only been two years in office. This has very much to do with our commitment 10 years ago, with our political commitment in the background, but also through voting. For example, the recent Climate Justice Initiative, which we also strongly supported. We also accompanied the Canton of Basel to Expo Milano, there we played a different role, with the former city president with whom we had a very good relationship. We assisted in the signature of the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact. Basel was one of the first cities to sign it. This gave the political legitimacy to write a strategy for sustainable food for Basel. We always act as a catalyst at critical points, contributing 
and actually enabling something. The fact that there is even a position for sustainable nutrition in the cantonal administration and that it is currently so high up on the agenda as never before is of course nice to see and we have certainly also contributed to that. It is obviously not only thanks to us, but we are pleased to see this because we still have a lot to do. Also, dass es in der Kantonsverwaltung überhaupt eine Stelle gibt für nachhaltige Ernährung, da haben wir sicher auch etwas dazu ähm, beigetragen. Und äh, dass es heute aktuell also so hoch auf der Agenda ist wie noch nie, das ist natürlich ähm, schön. Ist sicher nicht nur uns zu verdanken, aber wir haben sicher was dazu beigetragen und freut uns, äh, weil wir haben noch viel vor. Looking ahead, in the next five years or so, I was curious to know what the future looks like for urban agriculture Basel. Bastian told me that the organization is currently at an inflection point and he presented three options. There is the option to continue as they have been working so far, with the risk of being overtaken by other organizations they may have initiated. A second option is to further support running projects or take on new projects and further improve them beyond the startup phase in areas such as creating stable financing in the entire network for more autonomy or by increasing their presence in decision-making bodies in Basel. The third option would be to figure out how they can scale some of the most successful projects. And then there is the creative answer to my question in Bastian's own words. Take a listen. Dann gibt es noch einfach eine sehr kreative und wilde Antwort. Und das ist wirklich... Ähm There is a very creative and wild answer, and that's really go crazy. As you said earlier, there is still so much possible that can be done, and there needs to be a balance. So utopia is actually an impossible version of the future. But I think we have always had utopian thoughts, and some of them have in fact happened. We have dream glasses, a kind of pair of glasses that we sometimes put on, and And when we look through them, well, Basel looks obviously very different. It has completely different sounds, different scents, different plants, a different city climate, and you can think very far and very wild. So that is what we just do and what continues to motivate us. It's in the small things, but it's a lot of small things, and if a lot of people do a lot of small things, then that's certainly a good next step. Kleine Dinge und wenn viele Menschen viele kleine Dinge tun, dann ist das ähm, ein sicher ein, ein guter nächster Schritt. We have more coming up from our guests. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this short break. Fructify Network is a community of impact-driven individuals. We create and curate the resources you need to upskill and grow expertise in sustainability. Our team supports startups and small companies to embed sustainability in business models and engage their own communities for faster and deeper change. Register to our knowledge hub on sustainability at fructifynetwork.com. Welcome back to Narratives of Purpose. This is the final episode from the short series Exploring Sustainable Food Systems. Today the focus is on building community and networks around food production. Before the break, you heard from Imani and the work her nonprofit Minorities in Aquaculture carries out to promote a more diverse, inclusive aquaculture industry. You also heard from Bastian, a founding member of Urban Agriculture Basel, He shared how his network organization raises awareness on the need to make food supply more sustainable. To finish off my exploration of sustainable food systems in this short series, let's go to where it all started, in Geneva, with Romain Eugerly and Johan Pello the two co-founders of the first sustainable kebab restaurant in the city. These two young entrepreneurs, respectively 30 and 29 years old, got me started on this whole sustainable food journey. Their ambition is to revolutionize fast food. Essentially, they want to make it healthier and more sustainable. 
Listen to your one explain what is Alice Goods Gemüse Kebab, that is the name of the restaurant, and how their journey began. Alors, uh, Alice Goods Gemüse Kebab, qu'est-ce que c'est? It's a kebab, a gemüse kebab. The recipe is from Berlin. It is a little bit different. So it has vegetables in it. So we do have meat, we have chicken, but we try to favor vegetarian and vegan. And the idea is then to make the transition and have only vegetarian and vegan. And we tried to adapt this project to our values and to the local economy. How was it created? In fact, we met each other at a business school, we quickly became friends and we tried to launch different projects. We were attracted to entrepreneurship quite early and then Romain went to Berlin. Différents projets, on était attiré par l'entrepreneuriat assez, assez tôt. Et ensuite, Romain, il est parti à Berlin. If you recall from our preview episode introducing this short series, Gemüse means vegetables in German. I have to say that I was surprised they decided to give a German name to their restaurant, which literally translates to all good vegetable kebab. But then the second part of the origin story, told now by Romain, explains the connection to Germany. J'ai la chance de, de faire un Erasmus à Berlin. Ce côté lié culturel venait aussi de, de Berlin. I had the chance to do an Erasmus in Berlin. This cultural connection also came from Berlin. And so I discovered Alice Gut Gemüse Kebab, or Mustafa Gemüse Kebab, which opened in 2006. I was still a student at the time, and I loved street food. It was a kebab recipe reimagined, a little more refreshing, with vegetables, feta cheese, cucumbers, and other types of raw vegetables than the classic tomato and onion salad that we know. So when I came back here in Geneva, I talked about it for a long time with Johan for four years until the idea matured, and we said, Well, why not do it? Donc, on a tout ça ici. Donc, euh, ouais, pourquoi pas simplement s'appellerait ici? Pourquoi pas essayer? So, basically, Romain and Johan's gemüse kebab recipe is based on the Berlin recipe, but they adapted it to match locally available and seasonal vegetables. Also, the free-range chicken meat is local. In addition, they have their own homemade sauces and marinade, which are different from the ones in Berlin. On top of that, the bread has been adapted as well, because they worked with the local artisans to produce it. In fact, their initial entrepreneurial project evolved with time into aligning with their sustainability values. Romain told me that almost 95% of their products are labeled GRTA. GRTA is the acronym for Genève Région Terre Avenir, meaning that the great majority of their ingredients are sourced in the Geneva region. Gemuse Kebab opened in 2020. We recorded this interview in October 2022, exactly two years after Romain and Diawan launched their restaurant. So I was curious to find out what were the main challenges they had to face while establishing themselves in the local fast food landscape. This is what Romain said. Il y a, il y a tellement de choses. Je vais parler de la première qui me vient à l'esprit. Je ne sais pas si c'est la plus grande, mais c'est... There are so many things. I'll talk about the first one that comes to mind. It is that we got into something that is so popular, kebab sandwiches. Given that we had these values, that we wanted to make a homemade and local kebab. Well, we automatically had to be more expensive. But in people's minds, a kebab is 10 francs. It was 10 francs. Now, with inflation, even the kebabs have increased a little bit. And so it was complicated. There was really, and there still is, an effort of communication to be made, also because we are a non-profit, limited liability company. People don't have the information when they go to a restaurant. They don't necessarily know what's behind it. At the beginning, people thought it's 13 francs 50, 
that was our initial price, and they saw a lot of customers at noon, so they thought that we were making out of money. It's really the communication effort that was and still is a challenge. Because of the inflation we are experiencing, we had to change our prices this week for the second time, given that our margins are so low, in order to reach our sustainability objectives and not to be under too much pressure. The challenge, though, is not to become a kebab only for rich people who could afford it. We want to remain accessible and try to suit all budgets. Voilà, où il n'y a que des personnes qui peuvent se le permettre, donc on veut vraiment rester accessible et, et essayer de convenir à toutes les, les bourses. Now, coming back to the restaurant's sustainability values, Gemuse Kebab is also contributing to professional integration with their own program. Listen to Yoan talk about their team members and their achievements with the program so far. Alors, au niveau de l'équipe, on a une équipe très diverse. On a quasiment autant de femmes que d'hommes. Our team is very diverse. We have almost as many women as men, which is rare in kebab restaurants in general. And then, in terms of professional integration, we had the idea of launching a program, in fact, to become a springboard for people with a migrant background who have obtained asylum in Switzerland, people who have F-permits or who have permits, which makes it generally difficult for them to find work, because companies are afraid they don't know much about it. We started with Atik, who has been working with us for more than a year now. He is a young Afghan, 23 years old, who came to Switzerland at the age of 16. Atik has always worked in his life. His journey is admirable, and he will take on even more responsibilities in the near future. Our whole team has followed us since the beginning. We are now more or less 10 employees working at Alles Gut Gemüse Kebab. Plus ou moins, je pense, 10 employés à travailler actuellement dans Alles Gut Gemüse Kebab. As you know, one of the questions I always ask my guests about is the impact of their work. This time I wanted to understand whether Roma and Johan were already able to measure the impact of their restaurant activities and how they intended to qualify or quantify this impact. So it turns out that this is a major question because they are aware that they are carrying out good practices with their restaurant to reduce their environmental impact. However, measuring what is sustainable or what is not sustainable is currently a big issue and there is no approved body at the macro level that assesses sustainability using standard criteria in the hospitality sector or elsewhere. That being said, Gemuse Kebab is in discussion with a local company which developed an app to assess corporate social responsibility and they are in the midst of figuring out if this might be a useful tool for them to measure their impact. The company is called My Sustainable Company. And in fact, it is a digital platform, gamified, based on the ESO 26000. It takes into account in a holistic way, really, all the aspects of CSR. And we will look at tasks to measure the impact we have, then see how we can improve. Or maybe we are very good, but if there are ways to improve, they will tell us how, and they also give us the tools to implement and also how to communicate. As Romain said, communication is crucial. So how can we communicate so that the message gets through and we are as close as possible to what we really do? Ils vont nous dire comment et ils nous donnent aussi les outils pour mettre en place. Et puis aussi comment communiquer, comme il disait Romain, c'est un peu le nerf de la guerre de comment communiquer pour que le message passe bien et qu'on soit au plus proche de ce qu'on fait réellement. Johan just mentioned ISO or ISO 26000. This is a popular standard which is increasingly viewed as a way of assessing an organization's commitment to sustainability and its overall performance. At the end of our conversation, I asked both co-founders about success stories from their sustainable kebab restaurant. 
Yawan mentioned their ability to pay their employees more than the standard wages since the beginning, even though the restaurant business is not yet profitable. Then Romain added this other story. There is also this idea that we had at the beginning of the project, the suspended kebabs. In fact, customers have the possibility to buy a sandwich at a reduced price for someone in need. There are little less than 700 of them now, so almost one a day since we opened. We even put it on our menu now. So we have three sandwiches on the menu, the vegan, the vegetarian, and the chicken. And then we have the fourth one, which is the suspended kebab. It costs 10 francs instead of 14.50 for the chicken and 11.50 for the vegan. So the way it works, a customer comes and buys, let's say, a vegan kebab for themselves and another suspended one for someone in need. Then we have a board where we will simply write down the availability. This board is visible through our window from the street. And we gave flyers to associations that provide food to their beneficiaries, so they simply inform them that at our place there is food offered according to the availability. À manger leurs bénéficiaires en fait simplement pour leur dire voilà si jamais à cet endroit là des fois ils donnent en fonction des disponibilités et les gens viennent et disent bah j'aimerais un kebab. To conclude this final episode that highlighted changemakers building communities and networks around sustainable food production. Let me share with you the individual recommendations from today's guests for each of us to also contribute to a more sustainable food system in our everyday lives. First up is Imani Black, the founder of MIA, Minorities in Aquaculture. There are some parts of your food system that you won't be able to identify but identify the ones that you can and make those choices. Like in regards to seafood, find companies that, you know, align with your morals and values when it comes to uh, production, when it comes to harvesting, when it comes to just climate change, like any other kind of ecological impacts that you stand on, make sure that the food that you eat, if you're eating seafood or meat or whatever, is coming from locally sourced if it can. If it's not locally sourced, it's coming from and being shipped in from like a good company. Um, there are tons of, you know, salmon and other seafood companies that I really do enjoy just personally and that I've gotten my family and friends on too. So learn where you can in your food system and learn it well and make those decisions well. The second one to share his recommendations is Roma Agurli, the co-founder of Alles Gut Gemüse Kebab Restaurant in Geneva. Alors, moi, j'ai récemment assisté à une conférence de Suisse Veg. I recently attended a Swiss Veg conference about vegetarian nutrition. I was also able to become aware and gather information on the impact that a vegetarian diet can have as opposed to a meat diet. So I would advise this, because in my opinion, today it's quite easy to have a vegetarian diet and still have the pleasure of eating well. Also, everything that comes from industrial farming, in fact, should be avoided. Well, if, for example, you travel, you can discover something that is produced without too much volume. But then, it's really everything that is industrial that we should avoid, in my opinion. Sans trop de volume. Après, le problème, c'est que ça va, ça va être cher, évidemment. Mais du coup, c'est vraiment tout ce qui est vraiment ouais, industriel, faudrait éviter, selon moi. Still with Alice Good Gemuse Kebab Restaurant, the other co-founder, Johan Pelo, shares his recommendation, which is not directly related to nutrition, but a recommendation for everyone to contribute to a more sustainable environment. I like Romain's advice, but if I have to give another one, it is related to mobility. So, favoring soft mobility, especially the bicycle and the train. Because, in fact, it has an impact on pollution, but pollution at several levels, whether it is CO2 emissions, noise pollution, 
I think that it is also important for the quality of life of our cities today. Trains will start to develop more and more so that we can travel more easily. À la voiture ou à l'avion. Et je pense que les trains vont commencer à se développer de plus en plus pour qu'on puisse voyager plus facilement aussi en train. And closing up our recommendations part is Bastian Frisch, leading member of UAB, the Urban Agriculture Basel Network. Intuitively, I would say with every meal you can change a lot. Making yourself aware of that is a gigantic little step. That goes of course further with every purchase by looking for alternatives. Where can you reduce food waste? Where can you cook cleverly and maybe use the food again the next day? Then of course you can just educate yourself in this area. And ultimately, you can also simply become active. Just drop by, have a look. In every city, there are committed people who want to make a change. So the best day to start is now. So what about you? Are you involved in a local or global network around sustainable food production? Are you part of a community garden in your neighborhood? Or do you regularly share seasonal cooking recipes with your friends? We'd love to hear from you. Share your experiences with us by connecting on our social handles. You'll find the links in the episode show notes. And that's a wrap on our special short series exploring sustainable food systems. I truly hope that my conversations with the 11 guests throughout these three last episodes has been insightful. I hope that you have gained more knowledge on what is happening in some parts of the world around the sustainable food movement. And perhaps you have made new considerations or even initiated some changes in your habits. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I appreciate you taking the time. Remember that you can share this episode with your network, with your friends and your family. As always, we would appreciate you rating our show with five stars on Spotify. Last but not least, we have set ourselves up to grow a thriving membership community that gives you exclusive content and exclusive access to our podcast. Please check our Patreon page and choose a membership level you feel comfortable donating for. All the details are at patreon.com forward slash NOP podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash N-O-P podcast. We are grateful for your support. Until the next episode, take care of yourselves, stay well, eat well, and as always, stay inspired. This podcast was edited and produced by Tom Evan Hughes at Rustic Studios. This episode was written, translated, edited, and hosted by me, Claire Morigande. Mm-hmm.